at the beginning of the year, we often take a few sermons to reset and reframe ourselves around good and basic spiritual habits. This year, we're going to do much the same thing, but a little bit different. We do want to reset and reframe our lives as we head into the new year, but we want to do it a bit more robustly. We're calling this first series of the year Blessings Through the Basics, and here's what I hope to accomplish. In the first half of the series, I want to give you foundational theological truths about your relationship with God. How can you be in a right relationship with God? What is your relationship with God based on? Is your relationship with God secure? If so, why? How are you to understand your relationship with God when you sin? In the second half of the series, I want to show you how you build on those foundations and live out your relationship with Him. How do you grow? How do you live victoriously over sin? What role does the church play in your life? What's your mission? I'm calling it blessings through the basics because honestly, blessing, blessedness, happiness, joy in the Christian life is not complicated. It's the fruit of of trusting basic truths and doing basic things. And so today we start with the most basic truth. In fact, I'd say it's the most basic truth in the Christian life. What does it mean to be born again? There's perhaps no other two words in Christian lingo today that are more fuzzily understood than born again. There are also no other two words in the Bible that are more important. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So here's the deal. To be in a right relationship with God, you must be born again. So this morning, we're going to look at the new birth. And we're going to take some time. So get ready. And we're going to look at several passages and get underneath this. My hope this morning is twofold. For Christians, I want you to know what happened to you. I want you to see just how incredible and miraculous your spiritual birth was. I want you to understand this wasn't something you brought about. This wasn't something you decided to make happen. This isn't something that, that, that was done by you. It was something that was done to you according to the mercy and kindness and power of God. And for non-Christians, I want to help you be born again. I don't just want to help you understand the new birth. My hope is that you will experience the new birth. Now, in truth, 
I can do nothing to cause you to be born again. As you'll see today, the new birth is truly a work of God by the Holy Spirit that we have no power over. However, God uses means to bring about the new birth, and that's the preaching of the gospel. And so I pray as the word is preached today, God will work this miracle in your heart. So open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 2, verse 23. John's the fourth book in the New Testament. The, the Bible's divided into two big halves. The first half is the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. And then the second half is Matthew through Revelation. And Matthew is a little bit more than three-quarters of the way through. If you find Matthew, then go to Mark, Luke, and then John. It's on page 887 in those blue Bibles. And when I say chapter 2, verse 23... The big, bold numbers, those are the chapter numbers. Chapter 2 is big and bold. And then verse 23 are the smaller numbers. So chapter 2, verse 23. I'd also invite you to open up your sermon outline. It's going to help you follow along. And I've got three points for you this morning. Number one, there is such a thing as faith that doesn't save. Number two, in order to be saved, you must be born again. And then number three, the new birth is tied to Christ's work on the cross. Let's read 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is Jesus, many believed in his name. And they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. We see here that there is such a thing as faith in Jesus that doesn't save. That's a sober and freaky thought, but it's true. Consider these verses with me. Jesus is performing miracles, and as a result of his miracles, verse 23 says, Many believed in his name. Well, that's encouraging. I mean, if they believed, then they were saved, right? Actually, no. This faith that they have here isn't saving faith. And we know that because of Jesus' response to them. Verse 24 says, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. We know their faith wasn't saving faith because Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. To them. He didn't receive them. If there's one thing John makes clear, it's that if you come to Christ by faith, he receives you. John 14 says, If anyone loves me, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's intimate language there. If you love Christ, then Christ and the Father will make their home with you. They receive you. You become family. But Christ didn't receive these people. Although they believed in his name, he didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't receive them. Why? Because he knew their hearts. The end of verse 24 says, He didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, Jesus knew what was in their hearts. 
He knew that although they believed in him in some sense, although their feelings were excited by him, although their intellect affirmed him, they were not true disciples. Their faith, here's a word for you, their faith was spurious. Have you ever heard of that word spurious? Merriam-Webster defines spurious as, quote, outwardly similar to something, but without having its genuine qualities, end quote. Outwardly similar to something, but without having its genuine qualities. I was talking to a family yesterday uh, about Christmas, and the husband told me his wife wanted real Apple AirPods. She'd had spurious ones in the past, ones that look like AirPods but didn't work like AirPods, and she was done with these spurious AirPods. You need to know that this is a category for faith. The New Testament makes clear that not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone who believes in Jesus savingly believes in Jesus. Consider just a couple of passages with me. This is just showing you that there's a category in the Bible for spurious faith. John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that saving faith is a persevering faith. If you abide in his word, then you show yourself to have real, true, saving faith. If you don't abide in his word, that shows that your faith was spurious. It wasn't the real deal. James 2, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is talking about the uselessness of faith that doesn't result in obedience, what he calls works in that context. Now, be clear on this too. The Bible is clear that you are not saved by your works. But the Bible is also clear that your salvation leads to good works. It's an old saying and it's a good saying. You are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves never remains alone. It is accompanied by good works. So if your faith, if you believe but your life doesn't line up with God's word, then your faith is spurious. One more. Mark chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but in Mark 4, Jesus identifies four types of people that hear the gospel. There are those who hear it, and they just reject it out of hand. They don't believe it. Then there are those who hear it, and they receive it, and receive it with joy, in fact. But then when trouble or persecution arises, they fall away. Then there are those who hear it and receive it, but eventually the cares of this world and the desire for other things, those things creep in over time and subtly choke out the word and they prove unfruitful. And finally, there are those who hear it and receive it and continue in it and bear fruit. Friends, it's only the last category of hearers that are saved. Now, it appeared for a time that two out of the four were saved, but in the end, their faith is shown to be what? Spurious. It wasn't the real deal. 
So verse 23 says, many believed, but they actually weren't saved. And that leads me to my next point. In order to be saved, you must be born again. Now, this next section in our text, it's actually considered to be, or it's intended to be rather, it's intended to be a case study on verses 23 through 25. So 23 through 25 introduces this concept of spurious faith. Verses 1 through 2 shows us an example of it. Let me just read 23 through 25, but then I'm going to keep going. And I think you're going to see the connections that the text makes. So verse 23, just listen as I read. Now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed his name when, he, when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Do you see the connections? Jesus performs signs. People believe. Jesus knows what's in man. A man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus, says we know you're from God because we've seen the signs. Now, you need to know a little bit about Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees were a conservative wing of the Jewish nation who took the Bible very seriously. They wanted to serve God. They practiced careful obedience to the Old Testament law. In fact, their obedience was so careful and so tied up in knots that they created extra non-biblical laws because they were afraid of coming anywhere close to disobeying the law. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus in sincerity. Sometimes when you read the Gospels, you see that the Pharisees interacted with Jesus often in a way that was disingenuous. They were trying to trap him. Nicodemus, there's no evidence of that. There's no, there's no hint of malice. There's no hint of trying to trap Jesus. He does seem to be a bit fearful. It, it may be that he's coming by night out of fear of what other Pharisees may think if they know he's going to him. But there's no disingenuousness here. He addresses Jesus as rabbi. It's a term of great respect. And I just want you to take stock for just a second. Take stock. Here's a man who knows the Scriptures better than you, is doing all he can to obey the Scriptures. And he also believes in Jesus in some sense. It is reasonable to assume that like the rich young ruler, he has come to Jesus to find out what he must do to inherit eternal life. But Jesus cuts right to the chase. Verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this is shocking. To the Jew, to see the kingdom of God is to participate in the kingdom of God at the end of the age. It's to experience eternal resurrection life. It's to be saved. And Jesus says, in order to get that, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus's categories are blown. 
how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into a, a, in a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus has no categories for this. It makes no sense to him. Maybe it makes no sense to you. Well, let's understand it. The first thing to see is that new birth is new life, not religion or reform. New birth is new life, not religion or reform. Just just follow me here. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that if he wants to be saved, he needs to be born again. He doesn't need new religion. He doesn't need new moral reform. He needs new life. And he needs new life. Why? Because although Nicodemus is a very upright person, and maybe this morning that's you, you're a very upright person. But although Nicodemus was a very upright person, he was born a sinner. You see, when he was born, and when you were born, and when all of us were born, we're born sinners. We're born, Romans 5 tells us, in Adam, which means we're born with hearts given to sin. That's just our reality. You know that old... That old argument that folks kick around when they talk about why is it that, that people do bad things? Is it, is it nature or is it nurture, right? Is it environment or is it what's on the inside? Let me just help you. It's both, but according to the Bible, what's primary is what's on the inside. We do bad things because we're actually bad people on the inside. And that's all of us, Nicodemus included. And and verse verse 6 helps you see this a little bit. It says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then verse 7 goes on to reiterate the requirement of being born again. Why do we have to be born again? It's because we were born with sinful hearts. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And we need nothing less than new life, new hearts born of the Spirit. That which is of the Spirit is Spirit. D.A. Carson says this, quote, What must be seized from Jesus' insistence on the new birth as the prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom is the fact that this truth is applied to a man of the caliber of Nicodemus. If Nicodemus, with his knowledge, gifts, understanding, position, and integrity, if this man cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standing and good works, what hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation along such lines? Even for Nicodemus, there must be a radical transformation, the generation of new life comparable with physical birth. The next thing I want you to see is that the new birth is a supernatural work. It's not a process. Think about Nicodemus. He doesn't get it. He doesn't have categories. Verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He says much the same thing in verse 9. How can these things be? 
But you know what? He actually should have understood what Jesus was saying. Because Jesus was saying nothing more than what was embedded in the promises throughout the whole Old Testament. The very Old Testament of which he was actually a teacher. The new birth actually fulfills new covenant promises. I want you to look at verse 5 with me. Look at verse 5. So Nicodemus comes up for air. And then Jesus sets about to restate the same thing slightly differently. By the way, isn't it good when teachers do that? When you say something, the student doesn't understand it. And so then you restate it. The same thing, but different to try to help the student understand. That's what Jesus is doing in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, same introductory formula, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now this is so important, that I just want to take some time to understand this. Given all the parallels, first of all, you know that he's talking about the same thing in verses 3 and verses 5. Seeing the kingdom of God in verse 3 is further explained as entering the kingdom of God in verse 5. Being born again in verse 3 is further explained as being born of water and the Spirit in verse 5. But it remains, what does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? It doesn't mean that one is physical and one is spiritual, nor is it talking about baptism, even though I'm a Baptist and I love to talk about baptism. I think you'll understand it if you understand the Old Testament context. So remember Israel with me. Jump on the the Israel Wayback Machine for a second. After God brought Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, Her history is one of unending disobedience and rebellion against his law. Judges tells us that after Joshua died, they were faithful for one generation, but then fell away into faithlessness and rebellion in the next. So God in his mercy and grace would raise up a deliverer, and they'd be faithful for a time, but then they'd fall into faithlessness again. And this would happen until God raised up another deliverer, but then the process would continue again, on and on throughout the time of the kings, except the troughs of disobedience and rebellion were becoming longer and more heinous and more nasty, and, and the crests of faithfulness were becoming more brief and shorter. And on and on this goes throughout the history of the nation until God judged them for their sin. The northern ten tribes were conquered by Assyria in 722, carted off into exile. Finally, the southern two tribes, known as Judah, were conquered by Babylon in 589, carted off into exile. But the prophets prophesy of a coming day when God will do something special. And I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. So Ezekiel is in the middle of the Old Testament. It's it's after Psalms and Proverbs. And it's, in fact, after Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's before you get to all those little minor prophets that nobody ever knows where they are unless you've got tabs or were in Awana. Okay? So Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. Awana kids know where different parts of their Bible are better than me. Ezekiel 36, verse 22. 
Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Listen, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here's the situation. God's people were given God's law at Sinai, but they never obeyed it. They kept profaning God's name among the nations because they lived just like the nations. They were like supposed Christians who would go to church on Sunday, but then live like it didn't matter Monday through Saturday. Their disobedience sent them into exile, but God promises in this text something new, something Jeremiah 31 calls the new covenant. And what's new? What is God going to do? Well, it's given to us in verses 25 through 27. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Friends, that's a promise of cleansing and forgiveness. The sprinkling of water represents cleansing and forgiveness. And there's more. In addition to cleansing and forgiveness, there is also a radical change promised. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Remember, Israel had God's law, but not the ability to obey it. In the new covenant... That's going to change. By His Spirit, God is going to give His people a new heart, and this new heart will be inclined to obey God's law. These are the promises of the new covenant, which Jesus came to bring, and this is the context for Jesus' words to Nicodemus. Being born of water in the Spirit hearkens back to these promises in Ezekiel. And this beautifully opens up the new birth for you. It shows you that the new birth is this. It's the inner cleansing. It's the inner renewal of a person by the Spirit of God such that that person is radically changed. They have a new heart given by the Spirit and inclined to follow and obey God. That's the new birth. 
That's what's required to enter the kingdom of God. Turn back to John 3. Back to John 3. There's, there's something else I want you to see. And it's that the new birth is a sovereign work of the Spirit. Verse 8 says this, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What this verse teaches us is that the new birth isn't something that we can control or affect. We can't bring it about. And that makes sense if you just think about birth in the first place. You didn't cause yourself to be born. You didn't decide when you were going to be born and notify your parents. You weren't determinative in the process of your birth. And this is just like the wind. We can't control and we can't determine the wind. We, we can't control and determine when or how we're born again. We can't tell the wind to blow from the south. We can't tell the wind to blow from the north. We can't tell the wind to stop blowing or to start blowing. No, every sailor would think, glorious if I could, but you can't. The wind is going to do what the wind is going to do. It's absolutely out of your control. And so it is with the new birth. It's a sovereign work of the Spirit of God that you don't have control over. You don't wake up one morning and decide... I'm going to be born again today. You don't decide you're going to be born again at all. It's out of your control. It's something God must do. And we learn something else from verse 8. We learn that the new birth's effects are recognizable. We can't control where the wind blows, and we certainly can't, but we can see the effects of the wind, right? Verse 8 says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We can't control the wind, but we can tell if the wind is blowing. We can see the effects of the wind. I know that the wind is blowing at night at my house because I'll hear the wind vane on my porch and think, I need to take that thing down or my neighbor won't like me, right? Well, I know that the wind is blowing on Lake Champlain if I see the white caps as I drive over the causeway. The effects of the wind are recognizable. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Whoever experiences the new birth changes. And the changes are recognizable. The liar repents of lying. The angry father repents of his anger. The teenager who couldn't say a kind word to his siblings all of a sudden wants to be kind, is grieved when he's mean, and he starts to ask forgiveness apart from mom and dad telling him to do it. The man who thought church was a waste of two hours on Sunday morning or who only went at the behest of his wife or because he didn't want his wife to give him a hard time later, all of a sudden clears the calendar and says, this time is for God and I'm going to be there. The woman who never cared to read her Bible 
just had it on her nightstand, but she never picked it up, now begins to open it up and soak it up and ask God to teach her His Word and His ways. The person who is born again has a new compulsion to love, follow, and obey God, and you just begin to see it. It's like the effects of the wind. Back to the text. In verse 9, Nicodemus again shows us that he just doesn't get it. How can these things be? And then Jesus answers him in verse 10, and he says, Are you a teacher in Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus chastises Nicodemus because he, he, he should have had categories for this. He's a teacher of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is that story of Israel's inability to keep God's law, that Old Testament that promises that a new covenant will come wherein God's Spirit will, will cleanse the heart and renew His people from, begin, from, from within. Nicodemus should have had some categories for what Jesus was saying. But he didn't. And so Jesus says this in verse 11. And here's where we begin to get to the cross. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you earthly things? Heavenly things, pardon. Let me just help you with these verses. Jesus came... Nicodemus came to Jesus in verse 3, and he asserts something that he knows. He says, we know you're a teacher come from God. The we there is probably some of the Pharisees that have like mind with Nicodemus. But after we've kind of walked through this text, it's obvious that Nicodemus doesn't know as he ought to know, right? He thinks he knows, right? But, but he actually doesn't know, right? And so just as Nicodemus came to Jesus saying... We know now Jesus comes to him and he similarly says, we speak of what we know and that concerns heavenly realities. When Jesus says, if I have told you of earthly things and you don't believe them, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? What Jesus means by this is that through this earthy analogy... Birth. It doesn't get more simple and natural than that. Through this earthly analogy of birth, he's been speaking about the most basic of heavenly realities. The need to be born again. And Nicodemus, if you can't understand this, how are you going to understand anything? If he can't understand the most basic of spiritual truths, the need for God to cleanse us from within and cause us to be made new. How will he understand anything else? If he can't get this, then there's no way for Jesus to talk about greater things like like the filling up of all things in himself, like the consummation of the kingdom in the coming day, like the new heavens and the new earth. I could go on. And in verse 13, Jesus gives the reason he's so qualified to talk about these things. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
In other words, Nicodemus, you should listen to me. I'm qualified to talk to you about these heavenly realities because I have come from heaven. Remember, friends, Jesus is no mere man. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who became man. He left the glories of heaven and he came to earth in order to reveal to us heavenly realities and to accomplish our salvation. And Jesus' last words in Nicodemus in 14 and 15 are incredibly important because they tie the new birth to his work on the cross. So look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is talking about what's going to happen on the cross. In the book of John, Jesus being lifted up equals Jesus going to the cross. And here he says that just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness so too he must be lifted up on a cross that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, I want to read you the account of where this comes from so that you can understand it a bit better. I'm reading out of Numbers 21. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. This is from Numbers 21, and it says this. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient along the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So Israel's rebelling against God. Unfortunately, situation normal. And God judges them for their sin by sending fiery serpents who bite the people. And this is a frightful judgment. It is frightful to think of so many snakes that many in Israel died. But God in His mercy provided a way for them to be saved from this fearful judgment. He had Moses make a bronze snake and, he, and set it on a pole. And anyone who'd been bitten could look on that serpent, lift it up on that pole, and live. What's the point of the analogy? Every one of you stands condemned in your sin. No matter how good or how moral or how upright you are, you are still under the judgment of God for your sin. Even somebody as honorable as Nicodemus stands under the judgment of God for his sin. That's why Jesus came to die on the cross. 
he came to be lifted up on the cross to die and rise again that whoever looks to him in faith will be saved. This is so important because it shows us that the new birth is inextricably tied to the gospel. This new birth, this supernatural birth, this sovereign spiritual work that produces visible effects, this is tied to believing the gospel. Never separate the new birth from believing the gospel. They go together. In fact, like I said in the introduction, the gospel is actually the means through which God gives the new birth. 1 Peter 1 says this, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so I want to ask you this morning, Have you been born again? Do you have new life? Spiritual life? Has your heart been washed, cleaned, renewed, and made new? And does it beat after God? And please don't answer the question just based on the fact that you believe in Jesus. There is a faith in Jesus that does not save. Verse 23 through 25. And please don't answer the question based upon the fact that you've had some spiritual or emotional experience sometime or you feel like you have a connection with God. Answer the question by looking at the effects of the wind. What does the overall course of your life reveal? Do you keep his commandments? And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 1, or 1 John 2, verse 3. Do you live righteously? If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John 2, 29. Do you love God? Or do you love the world? Do not love the world for or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 Do you love the family of God? The church? And this is his commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4.21 Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 1 John 5.1 we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, 1 John 3.14. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother, 1 John 3.10. Friends, I say these things not to cause genuine Christians with tender consciences to despair and think that you're not a Christian. I say these things to cause those with spurious faith to reckon with the reality of your true state. Ask yourselves, friends, 
do these verses represent the trajectory of your life? Are these effects of the wind visible? If not, you have not been born again. And if that's you, if you're courageous enough to recognize that and to own that, instead of explain it away super fast, what should you do? Well, you might be thinking, well, based on the rest of this text, I'm shot. If this is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God that I can't control, what the heck am I supposed to do? I can't do anything. That's a good question. Listen to me carefully. Although it is true that you can do nothing to bring about the new birth, it does not follow that you should be passive in regards to the Lord. The Lord has called non-Christians to seek Him, and He promises that if you seek Him, you will find Him. If you are outside of Christ this morning, don't just sit there. Seek the Lord. Pray. Ask Him to convict you of your sin. Ask Him to open your eyes to your frightful condition. Ask Him to open your eyes to how much better He is than the world and your sin. Ask Him for grace to trust His gospel. Ask Him for these things. Ask others to pray for you. Tell other believers that that you're not sure where you stand with the Lord and, and ask them for help. Ask for prayer during one of our share times. How glorious would it be if we were increasingly honest and humble in our lives together in that context and somebody actually stood up and said, I don't know where I am with the Lord. Would you pray for me? God gives grace to the humble and He will answer that prayer. Let us pray for you and ask others for help. Ask me. Ask another one of our elders. Ask a mature brother or sister to get together. Let's just lower the temperature, share a meal together and talk and open up the Bible together and pray together over the course of weeks and months. Let God's church help you. And most important of all, if you know that you need Jesus... If you're convicted of your sin, then come to him and believe the promise of the gospel that he gave in verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus died on the cross and rose again to take the punishment you deserve for your sin. If you will turn from your sin, and trust in Him, you will be forgiven, accepted by God, given Christ's righteousness as a free gift, and an eternity with Him awaits you. Believe that. Trust in that. And if you do, praise God, All the credit goes to Him. He, by His Spirit, opened your eyes to your spiritual state. He, by His Spirit, opened your eyes to the glory of the gospel. 
He, by his spirit, smashed your heart that was indifferent to him. He, by his spirit, gave you a new heart to respond to the gospel. He, by his spirit, gave you new birth. And with your very first beat of your new heart, you trusted in Christ and you were saved. He caused you to be born again. And if he hadn't, you wouldn't have responded to the offer of the gospel. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess that your ways are higher than our ways. And this morning we bow before you humbly thanking you for your work of regeneration. Thank you that even when we were dead in our sins... You made us alive together in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.